0: I mentioned to you before that when the Bible was originally written, the biblical authors didn't use any kind of underlining. You don't have to see any kind of italics or things like that within the original language. They don't underline things in the original. So when you write a letter to somebody, you might want to underline something. If you're writing a love letter to your wife or to husband, you might say, I love you, and you underline love, and to really emphasize that you love that person. But the biblical authors didn't do that sort of thing. So instead, what the biblical authors would do when they wanted you to really grab onto a point and what wanted you to really catch a glimpse of what they were trying to say in, in very short amount of words is they would repeat something, repeat it over and over and over. And when you look at our passage this morning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 25, you see a whole lot of words that are repeated, don't you? Evening and morning is repeated five times. The word good is repeated six times. The word heaven or heavens is seven times. The word day is ten times. The word water is eleven times. Earth is used twelve times. And the word light is used thirteen times. And this is all pretty remarkable that you, you see this pattern, you see this repetition. Moses is methodically walking us through exactly how God created the heavens and the earth. But then there's a key word that he uses more than all of the other words, almost twice as many than any other word, and that is the word God. The word God is used 25 times within these 25 verses, so an average of one time per verse. Which leads me to ask the question who or what do you think is the point of Genesis 1 1 to 25? Well, it's God, right? The sovereign creator, all powerful God, painting all things well and good. He is the the great force. We looked at this a few weeks ago. In the beginning, God. He's this great force behind all of creation, bringing all things together, making it all happen. He is the force. He is the point of it all. He is the creator of it all. He receives the glory from it all. So there isn't one molecule in the entire of creation that doesn't owe its allegiance to God. There is not one leaf, one... One drop of water, anything that does not owe its allegiance to God, that all of the molecules that he creates in these verses, they all are to give God glory. As Paul says in Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Nothing would be if it weren't for God. If Genesis one didn't display that we wouldn't know. Nothing would be if it weren't for God. And all that exists is here to bring God glory. As the psalmist has famously said, the heavens declare the glory of God. So God is the point and His glory is the point. The glory of God, it is all about Him. Genesis 1 really displaying, as one author has said, displaying His glory in the theater of creation. That all that he creates is really intended to be a stage. It's a theater for all of his glory to be pointed at. Now let me ask why that would be important. Think about the first people that would have read this passage. What would those ancient Israelites have thought when they come to Genesis 1? How would it, What would it have triggered in their minds? We're far too sophisticated for this to, to come up in our own minds. But for how many thousands of years did human beings... Worship the creation rather than the creator. For how long did people worship animals? Have some sort of God that they would create? The Philistines, right? They had Dagon. He was half man and half fish. And they would worship this thing, right? Or they would, they would worship ocean deities. They would worship the sun. They would worship the stars. They would worship the moon. In Moses' day in Genesis 1... Genesis 1 would have been a a really big deal because Moses and everyone else could look to the surrounding nations that worshipped these things. That worshipped the sun. That worshipped the moon. Again, remember our context. That if Moses is writing Genesis when they're in the wilderness wanderings right after they pull out of Egypt. Well, for how long did the people of Israel live in the land of Egypt and be encumbered by all of the, the false gods? The paganism? that was all around them? Don't think that they were on their own little isolated island completely unaffected by all of this. Certainly, the people of God would have been affected by all of the pagan worship that had been happening around them. I mean, I'm not sure exactly if some of these ancient gods were exactly at the same time that the Jews were there, but you think of some of the ancient Egyptian gods, like Ammon, who was the Egyptian god of the air, the sun and the sky, or Horus was also the god of the sky, or Ra was the sun god, or Thoth, who had supposed control over the universe. Or Ta, the, who created all things. Or even the Pharaoh himself, who would have been designated and set up as a deity. And so there you are as one of the people of Israel. You have just left the land of paganism with gods of all kinds. Gods for all different kinds of animals in the creation, like the sun, sky, and ocean. God for just anything. And then you open up to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. All of those things that the Egyptians were worshipping, the true God made all of those things. And so Genesis 1 would have destroyed any kind of that paganism that may have been shackled on to the early Israelites. Any idolatry that they had picked up in Egypt would be obliterated by Moses in the first chapter of the Bible. As Moses displays that it is God, it is the true God, That has created and rules over all things. And so this morning I just ask you to place yourself there. Try to place yourself into the sandals of an early Israelite. To to think like an original reader. With even the same kinds of fears. And the same kind of concerns that you would have had. When you left the land that you had probably spent your entire life in. Right? They had recently left Egypt. That Egypt was a safe place. It was a place that they would, would be in slavery, yet they at least had food. They at least had their homes. They had their safety. And now here you are in the, in the desert. You're in the wilderness, wandering around like a bunch of fools. And you're likely scared. You don't know what's going to happen. Do I have the true God? Is he the true God or, or, or are the Egyptian gods the true gods? And it seems like our God brought us in the wilderness to rot. Yet how comforting it must have been for an ancient Israelite to read the words of Genesis 1 and to say, no, this is the true God. To read these words and be reminded that they are not to take refuge in the gods of Egypt. They are to take refuge in the God of Israel. They are to take, to take the, the true God. They are not to take refuge in Moses. They are not to take refuge in themselves. They are to take refuge into Yahweh, in the real, true, living God. And they may have asked, and we may ask this morning, well, how can I take refuge in God? In light of all of the other gods that are available to us right now, how do I know that God is the one to trust? Again, I doubt many of you know people who are going to kneel down and worship the sun this afternoon or the moon when it comes out tonight. We suffer with far more, frankly, little things than that, don't we? With technology and food or notoriety. Different worldviews or money, success. that Those are the things that we want to bow the knee to. That it, We would bow the knee to notoriety and success if it would definitely come to us. We don't worship the moon or the sun. We worship far lesser things. But this morning... If we're picturing ourselves as early Israelites and thinking about Genesis 1 and what it could mean to us to look at the sovereign God, the creator over all things, and to say, this is the one that we must take refuge in, in our creator. And part of how our trust is fueled for Him is got to be by looking at His providential creation and His care for all things. That we can know the same God that created the sparrows and sees when they fall and He watches and cares for us even far more than the creation that He created within this passage. And so this morning, I want to see three main points together in this passage. And you can find them on the back of your bulletin. The first one is that the Sovereign Lord created by His Word. The Sovereign Lord created... In six days, the sovereign Lord created all things good. We're going to really sit sit on point two for a while. And some of this is even overlap from what we saw a few weeks ago. But I think it would be good again as we look through these verses to look at these three points. And as we do, to just consider that we must trust in this God. Look at verses one and two to begin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face. Of the waters. As I had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Genesis 1 hints at, and I think the Bible as a whole describes for us that creation is actually an act of our Trinitarian God. And you see the Spirit of God in verse 2, right? It says that He's hovering over the waters. So the Spirit is involved with creation. The Father is involved, the Son is involved, all things were created by Him and for Him, Paul says. But the Spirit's role here, I think, is for preparatory purposes. In verse 2, the Spirit is preparing things for the creation to take off. He's awaiting for the Word to come forth in verse 3 that God says, let there be light. Okay, So the Spirit is really functioning in this preparatory role. But look at verse 3. This is the first day beginning. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So, from the very first day, as we consider what it means to trust in our sovereign Creator, we see that He created all things by His Word. You see these words all throughout these verses within the days of creation. God said, God said, God said. Right, seven times you see Moses saying this skip this phrase over and over. We don't know exactly what it would have looked like. Like, what would it sound like for God to say something? What would the words let there be like? What language would it be in? I mean, what would it sound like? What is this? Vo- we kind of have this: God has a really big, deep voice. But what would it sound like for God to say something? Other verses are helpful in supporting this really anthropomorphic language ascribed to God. For example, in Psalm 33, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. So this is anthropomorphic, which is really a, a big word to just say a human attribute that's being ascribed to God to really help you to understand. So sometimes the scripture will talk about the arms of God or the, the hand of God. And it's not as though God actually has a hand. The Bible says God is spirit. But what it's doing is it's helping you to kind of get a grasp a little bit. And so it's describing to God here things like, and God saw, and God said, describing this kind of humanistic language To God, as though God has, has breath, right? God doesn't breathe in the way that we breathe. He lived for eternity without oxygen, right? But the Lord created all things on all six days by His Word. And when you notice through the verses of this passage that there is no disobedience. There's never anything that stalls. I mean, isn't it true that anytime you have a project around the house, it's like, oh my goodness, I need these bolts. I forgot this screwdriver. I, like everything gets uh, so delayed when we're doing something. But not for God. God sets His mind to creating and He's going to do it. And it just happens. God said, and it happens. He speaks it all into being out of nothing. But I'm not going to linger along here because of how deeply we did look at this only a few weeks ago. I want to spend the most of our time looking at this second heading. The Sovereign Lord created in six days. So as you scan these verses, you see that everything that was created was created in the span of six days. Yet I only want us to look again at the first five and a half days. So He creates all of it. But I only want to look at the first five and a half because we're going to look at the last half a day in the next few weeks together when the image of God is conferred upon man. And so this morning, we see that the Lord created all things from the light in the way of the animals, all in the first five and a half days. But think with me about the first days of creation. In the first three days, what you really have going on is a lot of separation. God is separating the light and the darkness. He separates the atmosphere, right, between our atmosphere and space. And He separates the waters and the dry land. So the first day, God separates the light from the darkness. There was a day and a night, this pattern that we still follow, this evening and morning pattern. And it's interesting because the darkness is something that is not completely eradicated. You, you would kind of think maybe if God really wanted to have a very productive earth, he would just let it be light all the time everywhere, right? But God makes it so that there's light and that there's darkness. And in some way, it's almost as though he's, he's harnessing in the darkness. Like he's reigning in the darkness and saying, let there be light, right? And there it is. So the darkness that existed was then dissipated, separated, and light always causes the darkness to scatter. So God creates the light and separated it from the darkness, and this was the first day. But again, the light serves as a great picture for us Christians, doesn't it? And so does darkness, That again, I want to to draw your attention to not just the days and this is exactly how it happened and okay, you have some information in your minds. I want you to see how God creating light and separating the light and the darkness actually has more to do with something else. In redemption. So the Christian lingo that we often use is like, oh well, um, the darkness and following after the darkness and we kind of think we know what that means in our little christianese right and then oh no they follow the light over here right so there's there's this separation (laughs) that light exists to give us an earthly glimpse of what god is like spiritually speaking is not jesus the light of the world he is the light he's our light I think that the light and the darkness in this distinction, because again, this is how we're all separated. Either we're in Adam or we're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a follower of the light. If you're in Adam, you're a follower of the darkness, right? This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, For for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this creation of light separated from the darkness serves as an example to us of what God has done in our own hearts. Has not God shown the light of the gospel in your hearts? I hope so. I hope that your your heart has been flooded with the light from God and the sun itself and the moon and the stars. All of that is there to help display what He means by light. This is what it looks like. For darkness to be pushed and to be reined and pulled back within your soul that the light has come in from the gospel. So like I've mentioned a couple times through this series so far, we don't understand creation in just some sort of vacuum. Again, just the facts. We want to understand how this creation helps us to understand our redemption. And this is the light. That creation tells us more. And on this first day, with the creation of light and its separation from darkness, we see how it's even used as an example of what has happened in our hearts through the gospel. That the God who said, let there be light, also said, let there be light in your heart. But then we have day two. Look at verse six. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Those are kind of a confusing few verses, aren't they? The expanse and the waters, and how does all of that work? This word for expanse here has the idea of God hammering it out. He's hammering out this this big sheet of sorts. He's hammering out the expanse and creating this separation, He's this firmament. And day two likely has something to do with our atmosphere. That obviously, if you leave our atmosphere, you're a little far from home, right? If If you're out there in space, you're pretty far from home. I wouldn't want to volunteer to go into space. But there are people who apparently like to leave our atmosphere, and they fly around in what we call space but that wouldn't exist if God didn't create that distinction, right? And this is likely what's going on in day two, that God is is stretching out or hammering out the difference between our atmosphere and space. Psalm 104 tells us that He stretches out the heavens like a tent. Or Isaiah 40 tells us that He stretches the heavens out like a canopy. So day two, he is still separating these things out. He's creating this expanse. He's separating the waters. And you notice that God does something interesting on day two when he names something. He names heaven. On day one, he named the day and the night. And this is important for us to know. And we do this even now really without thinking about it. But to name something means that you have authority over it. So all of you, when you had a child, you didn't wait till they could kind of five or six when they said, oh, I want my name to be this. No, but when they were born, maybe even before they were born and you knew what they were going to be, you named them. And what that displays, whether you realized it or not, is it displays the fact that you have authority over your children. And so by naming the day and the night and the heavens and so forth, God as the creator is saying, I created these things and these are mine. Right. I have created you, I have named you, you are mine. So he creates the heavens, he names the heavens, he hammers out this expanse, but then day two draws to a close to bring in day three, which was going to be more separation. Look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, So the sovereign Lord is just continuing on with his creation and his painting, if you will, is becoming increasingly more and more prepared for all that's to follow. He continues his acts of separation and he separates the waters from the dry land. God is controlling the darkness and the waters again. So he's kind of reigned in the darkness and he's produced light. And he's also reigned in the waters and he's produced this dry land. And again, like darkness is something that is a bit unnerving to children. And maybe even as we get older, it can be unnerving to us. Or people that move to the middle of Maine from like the state of Rhode Island, like I did growing up. We had streetlights. It was always light. And then suddenly, you walk outside. I've walked out of this building before, and I truly could not see the building across the way. I mean, it's that dark, right? And it can be unnerving. The waters, right? When you think of the waters that, that he had separated, water can be unnerving, right? But, but God is, is simply reigning all of this in. And isn't it interesting, too, that we see this with Christ, when Christ comes to the earth. And he is on the boat taking a nap. And the winds and the waves are blowing all about. And he says, peace be still. And it's like glass, Right? The same powerful sovereign Lord who is creating and separating the waters from the dry land on this day would be the one to calm the winds and the waves. To have the power over creation. So he separates the water from the land. Really what I think he's doing, he's creating continents, really large swaths of land, probably unlike what we have right now. Maybe it was one big chunk of land. We really don't know. But then he commands the earth to sprout forth its vegetation. So he creates the land, and then he, he demands the land to bring forth something of value. The dry land isn't going to be some barren wasteland that's all sand. It would actually be good for something. So trees are immediately springing up, and they're bearing fruit. The, the Lord filled the earth with all kinds of vegetation. All of these trees and plants producing after their own kind. And I would insert here that God created everything with the appearance of age. Like when God causes the the dry land to appear, there are mountains and there are rocks that look really old. And when God causes these trees to spring up, they just spring up and they look like a tree that's been here for a hundred years. God created everything that He's creating here with the appearance of age. But isn't it interesting when you consider all the things that God gave us? He gave us such a diversity in plants and fruits to eat from. Like, aren't you thankful that God didn't just make one sort of fruit? Aren't you thankful that God didn't make just one sort of vegetables if you're into that kind of thing? (laughs) And so from the earth, after day three, if all of this weren't amazing enough, God then, He just launches us from the earth into outer space. And He begins to tell us how He created all of these various lights that He placed in the heavens. Look at verse 14. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. So after preparing the earth for what's to follow, He begins to create this out, the outside of this atmosphere. With utter precision, right? The sovereign Lord, he, he hangs the sun in the sky. And He hangs the moon in the sky. And He begins to put all of these stars in their places. Again, the the very things that man worshipped for so long. Worshipping the sun, worshipping the moon, worshipping the stars. They're simply created things from our Lord. Biblically speaking, the sun and the moon had other purposes as well. And we know scientifically that they have other purposes. Obviously, the the sun keeps us warm. But Moses indicates here... That this, the moon and the sun, they would be for signs and seasons and days and years. If you, if you look for the word moon in your Bible, you'll see that they would mark their days on when the new moon would be coming and so forth. So I remember looking up in First Samuel and David was like, tomorrow's going to be the new moon. And so we'll do this then. So they would, they would mark their days, their days by this sort of thing. So as our our little blueberry of a planet rotates around the sun, right, it gets warmer and it gets colder depending on that rotation. And of course the moon and the sun, they, they impact the ocean tides, right, with their gravitational pulls. But the bulk of the job that the sun and the moon have is to give light and to mark the days and the seasons, again, something that we still use them for. But I would also suggest that the sun and the moon and the stars, again, they serve redemptive purposes. And that they would be used as illustrations from our God to tell a greater story. So friends, the sun is, is, is much more than a big flaming heap of hydrogen and helium 93 million miles away. The, the sun teaches us about our God and our salvation. And what could the, the stars teach us about God and our salvation? What could the moon teach us? Well, certainly all of these things should humble us, right? And these are items to consider and to think about in depth, to to really reflect upon the creation and for it to cause us to worship. One of the real drawbacks, I think, of this technological world that we live in is that we stare at our cell phones and we stare at our laptops and we stare at our TVs and all of the light that's in those things, right? And we kind of neglect these beautiful great lights that God has created for us. I'll be honest, there was like that blood wolf moon red thing the other night. And I didn't go outside and try to look at it. I just wasn't that concerned. But how cool must that have been, right? See the pictures of this red moon. That God created these things. That we, in some sense, have really lost our awe and wonder over the created universe. That the creation of the heavens and the lights that God has hung in the heavens, they serve to show us something about himself. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 8, When I look at your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So the one who created the heavens and the moon and the stars, like, I can't even fathom that the one who created all of those things would actually care to be mindful of me. Why would he care about a worm when he has all of these beautiful things that he has created? But consider the stars with me for a moment. As God is flinging all of these stars into space and he's fashioning the Big Dipper and he's making Orion's belt and all the rest. Have you stopped to consider what those stars represent? Do you remember the beautiful scene where God takes Abraham out in Genesis 15? And if you're doing your Bible reading program, then you would have recently read this. When God takes Abraham This pagan man from this pagan country makes these promises to him. He said that he'll give Abraham a land and a people and he makes a covenant with him. But in Genesis 15, God says this to Abraham. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And over and over in the Old Testament, there's this reminder to God's people, right? That, that they were going to be impossible to number. They were going to be like the very stars of the sky. The ones that he had created. They were going to be like them. And in the Old Testament, we usually think exclusively in terms of the Jews. But the Apostle Paul opens this up in Galatians 3 and says that it would be those who are faith, are, who are of faith that are the children of Abraham. That God promised that in Abraham, all of the nations would be blessed. So then it is those of faith who would be the children of Abraham. The offspring that was promised to Abraham was not going to be just an ethnic people. It was actually going to be a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So that our children now can confidently sing the Sunday school song. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. God takes Abraham out to look at the stars that he created and he says, look at the stars I made. Try to number them. You can't do it. So shall your offspring be. And if you are a person of faith here this morning, the stars of heaven themselves represent the offspring of Abraham. The people of faith, they represent us the true offspring of Abraham. Again, consider what is man that God is mindful of us. Next is day five. Look at verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. You notice there that they are given, they are given this this command to be fruitful and multiply. Which is interesting because the land animals aren't given this command. But the, the birds and these, these water creatures. They're given the command to be fruitful and multiply. So God's not concerned about overpopulation in the oceans. He wants them to be overpopulated. He wants it to be loaded with animals. He wants the skies to be loaded with birds. And, and we could say a brief word about how it would be a terrible thing. And, and to exercise dominion over the earth does not mean you should just wipe out all of the animals. Just set up a gun and wipe out buffalo. Like, that's, that's terrible. Wasteful. So on a level, I think we all should be conservationists in the sense that we want the earth to be filled with animals. We, we want our seas and our oceans to be filled with, with whales and fish of all kinds, don't we? We want our skies to be filled with birds. God creates all of these incredible animals, and so suddenly He says, Let there be, and the waters are filled with this orderly chaos, if you will, of these teeming living creatures. The atmosphere is filled with the birds flying. Within the oceans are every living thing that moves, and the sea creatures. Friends, I don't care if you're. Positive that there's not a big fish or a big shark or something, there's no way that you're going to find me sitting like swimming in the middle of the ocean. It's not going to happen. Like to just jump off a boat into the middle of the the Atlantic, I don't care if there's nothing there. Nothing there. There's something there, right? I won't even do that in the middle of a pond or a lake. God created some creepy things that swim around in the water. So I'm totally all set. And then you start looking about what the Bible says about some of the things that he created, right? You think of this created creature called Leviathan. No less than five times is this creature Leviathan mentioned in the Bible. This sort of serpent-like sea creature. Like, look, I don't care if there's no pictures of it. It's like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. Like, I don't need to be in the water where that thing used to swim anyway, right? So Job 41.1 says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or pressed down his tongue with a cord. So he's basically saying, yeah, you think you're going to go fishing for a Leviathan? Like, you think you could do that? And God's trying to, you know, he's showing him how much more powerful he is. Because, of course, God can do whatever he wants with his created creatures. Or Psalm 104 says, Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Like God created the oceans, and He created this monstrous, serpenty, dinosaury-type creature to play in the ocean. What would cause us to panic at the sheer sight of it, Leviathan, a sea monster? God formed to play and frolic in the ocean. Why? Like why did He do all of this? Why did He create something like the Leviathan? Why did he eventually, why did he create the dinosaurs? Why did he create all of these awesome, magnificent creatures? Well, Psalm 148.7 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all the deeps. Why did God create Leviathan? Simply to bring himself glory. But we come to day six. And again, we're only going to look at the first half of the day. Because of how long we'll look at it in the next coming weeks. But in the first half of the day, we see the creation of the land animals. Look at verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Can you just imagine what that would have been like? For the animals that were there to, to just appear. Let there be these land animals, and, and there they are. Again, created with age. Right? So what came first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken came first, because He created the chicken, and He created it as an adult. Right. And so God says, Let there be, and suddenly the horse. Or the ancestor of the current horse appears and it bends down to, to drink from the stream and to eat some grass that was created just days before. Or the large or small cats running around. Or the ancestor of the elephant bathing itself in a pool. Or a couple of woolly mammoths playing. Right? The dinosaurs being created and, and stretching their legs for the first time and, and beginning to run around with each other. I just can't imagine what that would had been like... I don't know, maybe it looked like Jurassic Park, but, but nobody was dying. Or maybe it would be like a, a scene from, from a kid's book or, or a movie of some kind, that all of these animals, they're just hanging out with each other and they're not trying to kill each other. It would have been wonderful that our sovereign Lord created all things in six days and He did it by speaking it all into existence. But I want you to notice our final point in the sermon. In that the Sovereign Lord created all things good. This is an important point, and it's something that it's mentioned over and over again, right? So God said, do this, and it did, and it was good. God said, do this, and it did, and it was good. And though God could do anything, as though God could do anything, but make something or do something good, right? So every single time, and this happened, and it was good. This happened, and it was good. As though God could do anything but good. And with no person on earth to sing His praise, God would just simply sing His own praise. He would make it happen, and He would say, and it's good. In our lives, when God does something, we praise Him, and we glorify Him, and we trust in Him, and thank Him, and pronounce what He has done as good, right? You must do that. God has created you. And God has created your circumstances. And brought you through all of the things. And is bringing you through all of the things that He's bringing you through. You must not say anything but, Lord, your will is good. Do not complain against Him. Do not buck against Him. Be thankful for the things that He has brought into your life. As Paul says in Romans... For all those who love him, all things work together for good. And so we speak that in response to God's actions in our lives. But before there was ever a human to give him praise, God says, my creation is good. The Bible tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? We truly tasted and seen that He is good? But then the psalmist quickly moves to, Blessed is the man who takes his refuge in Him. Isn't that kind of our goal this morning as we look at this passage? This is a great creator God. He's created all of things. We look at Genesis, Genesis 1. How could we want to do anything else than take refuge in this God? How can we take refuge in anyone or anything else? The God who created all things good, despite our struggles and battles that He wants us to go through, He's going to cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him. Have you tasted and seen that He is good? Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who takes refuge in this God. But there's still something or someone else for God to create. He's not finished with His creation. In fact, despite all of the beauty that he had created and the incredible animals and the scenery, the lakes, all of it, there is still something even more incredible than all of those that God is going to create. There's one more thing. The pinnacle of his creation had not yet been created. So his best work, despite all of this beauty that he created, his best work is still saved for last. And so we will get to that in two weeks. Let's pray. Lord, you have created all things good. You did it by the word of your power. And Lord, I pray that you will help us truly to take trust and refuge in you. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to taste and see that you're good. Lord, I pray that you'll help us